Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Our Heavenly Father, now we're about to open the Word of God. Help us not to take it casually. We're going to discuss things that are important to you and to your Son, Jesus, who is the head of the church. We're going to talk a bit more about the church, about this one, about the fellowship we enjoy, about the the treasured moments that we've had and how you've brought us together in this place. Father, we thank you for this year that we're concluding today, the 52nd Sunday of worship and fellowship during this church year. Father, just guide us. Open up your word that we would understand it and be able to just stand upon it. For we ask you now in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're drawing near to the end of this month-long discussion regarding the unique nature of Sun Life Community Church. This is this fellowship. It's the one that we are part of. It's distinct from all the others on the, on the earth, even as each one of them is distinct from us. In heaven, the church will all be one. On earth, the Lord works with individual people in individual places, in individual cultures, and out of every collection of believers, he he allows to emerge something of his own unique calling and nature. And we delight in the calling and nature of Christ that we discover in this place. We're coming to the end, as I mentioned, of this church year. We're anticipating the beginning of a new one next week. And all this month, we've been seeking to answer this question, what is the distinctive nature of the congregation called Sun Life Community Church? How can it be characterized and what do those characterizations mean? When people say to you, where do you go to church? What's your church like? Oh my goodness. Every member of any church anywhere, you want to be thrilled to say, let me tell you about my church. Let me tell you about the people in my church. Let me tell you about the way the Lord just stirs my heart and thrills me when I attend a service of my church. That's the way Jesus would want us to be. That's the way we want to be every time we come together. And so there's some distinguishing things, unique things about this particular little part of the body of Christ. And we're rejoicing in them. We're reminding ourselves of them. Some of us are learning about them for the first time this month. And so let's press on. On the front of our bulletin each week are listed six distinguishing characteristics of this small little part of Christ's wonderful bride. The one that Jesus himself would propose that the people in this place commit themselves to join for the next 12 months. So each of them provides an answer to the question before us. And today on this final Sunday of this church year, 
We're focusing on answer part five. Here it says, Sun Life Community Church is an overseer-led congregation. Jesus invites us to be part of it. And so we ask, what is it? Well, here's one thing it's not. We don't get to talk about this much. I don't think I've talked about it all this year, but today we're going to. What it means is, Sun Life Community Church is not a congregation-led body of believers. That means a, a church where the people get together in business meetings and make all the decisions and, and debate back and forth what they ought to be and hopefully come to something that they all agree about, but where the congregation runs the affairs of the church and everybody is responsible to take a part. Let me just say that uh, prior to planting, starting, establishing Sun Life Community Church some 27 years ago, I spent the previous 26 years in congregation-led fellowships. 22 of those years were spent as pastor of such a congregation. Almost all of those years, I felt that a congregational-led fellowship was absolutely the most biblical way to go, the most biblical form of church government. The seminary I attended taught that. And just about Linda, my wife's, her entire congregational life or Christian life had been lived with that understanding as well. Some 28 years ago, that understanding changed for both of us. That change came about as the Holy Spirit began to reveal to us some of the things that I'm calling this morning four problems with congregationalism. Four big problems. So let's go through them quickly. This was a transformation in my mind. It, it shocked me when I started to first realize this and then discover, the, of course, the scriptures underneath it. Here's the first problem. Congregationalism. You've got your note sheet there. It's all there. I want you to use that note sheet as a reference sheet that you can keep with you to just know what are we about and why are we about it the way we are. But all the blanks are filled in so you can just kind of follow along with us this morning, but know you have it there uh, in your hand. Congregationalism, number one, assigns to every member equal spiritual maturity and legal authority. It just says every one of these people in this church are of equal spiritual standing, and they have equal legal authority to make decisions about what this church should do or not do. Each member has equal say on matters affecting the congregation. The brand new Christian, what might be called a babe in Christ, and the more fully sanctified saint, cast votes of equal weight on any subject. And as a result, in a congregation-led fellowship, the vote of the most immature believer present can nullify the vote of the most mature believer present. And if the immature believers outnumber the mature believers, then things that should never be approved, maybe things that should have never even come up before the body for discussion, might well be established. Frequently, 
the more mature believers in the room actually give in to the wishes and the desires of the less mature simply to avoid conflict. I've seen it happen. That's a problem. That's a problem that can lead to bad decisions and, and, and bad directions for a church. Secondly, congregationalism places on each member great responsibility. Well, you can understand that. If you are a member of a church that tells you that you have to vote about what that church does and doesn't do and programs it does and doesn't have and, and all the things that make it up in its community, you can feel, if you're responsible, you can feel the weight of that responsibility. And they come together in a business meeting and frequently people are called upon to make decisions about things that they really don't know very much about. And that can create great anxiety and stress. Third thing, congregationalism provides opportunities for the flesh. And the Apostle Paul said right out in the scripture, don't do that. Do not make opportunities for the flesh. All of us have a fleshly nature, don't we? Do you ever battle with it? The fleshly nature, the fallen nature, the passionate, emotional, sin-prone nature, all of us have one of those. The Bible, the Apostle Paul says, now, but we all have that until we get to heaven. But don't make provision for it. Don't put yourself in situations where your fleshly nature is most likely to come to the fore and maybe lead your spiritual nature down the wrong path. Well, I'm saying congregationalism actually provides opportunities for the flesh. Everybody is told they have to make a decision about something. Everybody is told they have the authority to determine what decisions ought to be made, what judgments ought to be uh, made, and what practices ought to be entered into. And in that setting, when they're all together, all of them flesh-bearing people, ideas get debated. Discussions can become heated. Robert's rules of order, rather than the scripture, determine the way the meeting will be conducted and how some degree of decorum will be maintained. Frequently in meetings like that, the less mature members speak the loudest and the longest and perhaps even win the day. Sometimes those less mature members are actually the ones who've been in the church the longest. And therefore, they carry a lot of clout. The proposal before the congregation might actually not be the most God-honoring thing to do. The church body might actually decide to do something and do it in a way that actually would bring discredit to Jesus' name because somebody proposed it and defended it and passionately demanded it, and the body as a whole decides upon it. Now, I know for those of you who have never been in a situation like that, I know here's a thought that comes to your mind. And they say, why does the pastor let something like that happen? Why doesn't he just step in and say, hey, people, we're out of line here. 
hey, people, this is getting kind of fleshly. Maybe we ought to just stop it for a while. Maybe we ought to pray. Maybe we ought to just uh, let, uh, set it aside. Well, let me give you a clearer picture of what happens in a setting like that. You see, in the midst of all that carefully worked out procedure, how to make motions and debate them and vote on them and who has the authority to speak and so forth. In the midst of all of that activity, the pastor of a church in such a congregation is expected to sit quietly in the back and actually not even enter into the discussion lest he inappropriately influence the congregation one way or the other. After all, he is their employee. You see, it was by their vote and by the good will that he is even in his position in that church. And at any given moment, he could also, by their will, be eliminated from that position. Maybe even in that very meeting were he to speak out. But, and here's where the problem shows itself even more, competitive urges, that's something that's in the human nature. We are competitive people. We want to win. That's why Dave's wearing that Kansas City Chiefs jacket today. Yes, we want to win. We want everything we're associated with to win. And when you're in a church business meeting, by golly, if there's two sides being discussed, whatever side you're on, you want it to prevail. And so arguments begin, debates, brilliant ideas are shared by those making those ideas, and and then defenses are given. And sooner or later, in the midst of that kind of excited discussion, Somebody calls for the vote. Robert's Rules of Order says that that is something that must be honored. I call for the vote, says somebody. So then the moderator says, uh, either raising hands, writing out a secret ballot, however they choose to do it, a vote is taken. And once that vote is taken, that congregation is divided into winners and losers. And for those on the loser side, their flesh inevitably inevitably says, next time I will prevail. You see, it's a political process. And a political process has uh, some manipulative possibilities to it. Next time I'll get some people. Who's not here today that agrees with me? But by golly, we could have used their vote. Next time, we're going to make sure there's enough of us here to carry the day. Because we're not going to lose out on this again. It becomes a, a political process. And as you know, you know as well as I do, that once the flesh is stirred up, it tends to stay stirred up. And that fellowship, having gone through a meeting like that, let alone numerous meetings like that, can be irreparably damaged. 
It's hard to come together next Sunday in a wonderful worship service when the previous Sunday night, you and some of these people have gone nose to nose over some issue. And you feel that maybe they even played unfairly. It's hard to come back to church next Sunday and just say we're brothers and sisters in Christ and, and worship in a, a spirit of love and acceptance and fellowship. Many churches never even survive a particularly bad business meeting. Well, those are four, three reasons. Here's a fourth one. It's actually the most telling of them all. Why Sun Life Community Church is not a congregationally-led church. And it's this. Congregational rule is not biblical. I imagine you could have guessed that by what I've said so far. It's just not biblical, though it is American. We Americans live in a country that, that is built around the very principles that I was just describing. Everybody has a vote. Everybody has a say. Everybody is equal. This is a democracy. And it's very easy to understand why the churches in the United States of America, many of them, just kind of almost unthinkingly move into a democratic American political policy when they're establishing themselves. It's just the way we do things. Why wouldn't we run our churches that way? But you see, though it is American, this congregation-led church is not biblical. Now, here's something just by way of observation. Almost every time the people as a whole decided something in the scripture, it turned out to be contrary to God's will. Just think of some of them. When God was first developing his nation of, of Israel and he led all the Hebrews out of Egypt, the story's told in the book of Exodus, and, and I was just going through that this week, just reminding myself, you know, the people, as they came out of Egypt, <laughs> and they ran into just a little bit of difficulty, very, very quickly, the people thought it would be a good idea just to go back. Better food in Egypt? better security in Egypt. Why did we come out here in the first place? In fact, they had barely put their feet on the road to the promised land when that thought first struck them. We'd be better off in Egypt. We were better off in Egypt if they had taken a vote. If they had had that authority, they probably would have turned around. And then just a little bit later on, when God called Moses up onto the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, and Moses was gone for 40 full days, the people got their minds together, and they said to Aaron, make us a god, an idol, something we can see and touch and know, and say, this is our god. This is at least a representative of the god who brought the plagues upon Egypt. We need something tangible. We need something we can bow down to. Make us a god. And you know the story, perhaps, that they threw all their gold into the fire, and, and Aaron says, and out came a golden calf. And he said to the people who wanted that, here's your god. Moses came back down the mountain, holding the Ten Commandments in his hand. 
He was so outraged at what they were doing that he broke down that golden idol, he ground it to powder, he mixed it with water, and he made the people drink every drop of it. But the people decided. They they thought they knew what they needed. They thought they knew what would hold them together. Just give us something tangible, beautiful, that we can bow down in front of and and say, now, don't have to just imagine your God in heaven. Here, here is something physical, tangible, even though the Ten Commandments that Moses was bringing down would say, thou shalt make no graven image of me. Oh, it was terrible. Aaron, Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, Aaron was led into sin by their insistence. Make for us, they said. And he followed their will. Later on, they come right to the verge of the promised land. They send in 12 spies, and the majority of the spies, 10 out of 12, said, we cannot overcome the inhabitants of this land. They are too strong for us. In a system where majority rules, they would have never, that would have settled it. We'll find another place to live. God says this one, but these people can never be defeated. We will do something different. The majority has ruled. God being a majority of one, you know how that worked out. He condemned that decision. Their lack of faith, their lack of obedience, and he condemned that entire generation of newly rescued people. He condemned them to death. And he allowed them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every single member of that voting collection who went along with the the 10 spies were dead and buried. How about the crowd? The crowd that gathered before Pilate one day. The crowd that Pilate gave the authority to make a choice. He gave them a vote to cast. All these people, he would do whatever they said. And when they looked at Jesus Christ, they said, Crucify. You see, people gathered together, people thinking that they have authority to decide things, they create a most unpredictable dynamic. The Lord Jesus, the designer and builder of his church on earth, would never would never put its operation and its care in the hands of all of its members gathered together at one time in one place, responding to whatever the circumstance might be. It would be an incredibly risky thing to do. So how has... How has the Lord Jesus, the Lord of the church, determined that each of his local congregations should be led? How should the decisions come about? Because decisions inevitably are needed. Should we do this or should we do that? Should we continue this way or another way? How are those questions answered in the church of Jesus Christ? 
But Jesus answered that question way back in the beginning. He decided when the first congregations were being raised up, when the Apostle Paul was going around through the Mediterranean world and preaching the gospel, folks were getting saved and they were just naturally clinging to one another, organizing themselves into identities of small bands of believers in Jesus Christ, whether in Corinth or Ephesus or Galatia, wherever it might be, here they are. And it's like, how do we go about doing this? keeping one another going, establishing our identity in the midst of a pagan world and a a highly Jewish community. How do we do this? Jesus determined way back in the beginning that each of them should be what we're calling today overseer-led, not little bodies of democratic believers, but overseer-led. And so here's where we jump into the scriptures this morning to see just what what they say about this. Today we're going to examine quickly. That's why I want you to have your sheet and hold on to it because the biblical references now are are right there. Number one, the biblical framework for overseer-led leadership in a local church. Two key New Testament terms. Two key Greek words. New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek language was chosen to communicate God's truth, Christ's truth, to the church. And here's the two terms, presbuteros, try to say that to yourself, presbuteros, presbuteros. It might sound like something you've heard before. And then this one, Greek word, episkopos, that might sound like something you've heard before. But let's take the first one first, presbuteros. Presbuteros is a word, ordinary Greek word, that refers to the quality of a person. It's always translated in the Bible by the English word elder. Elder. It means and has meant all along a mature person, a wise person, one to whom you look for insight and counsel. A presbuteros, a mature, wise person, an elder. This role of the elder was well established in the Jewish culture. In the Old Testament, it tells us in various places, the elders of a given town, the wise ones, the old ones, the sages, they would sit, some of them, maybe on a rotation basis, I don't know, they would sit at the city gates And they were available for people to come and tell their stresses, their distresses to these elders and seek settlement, resolution of any of the disputes that came up before the people. The elders would be there to give that wise counsel. The elders would be there to to just give advice to those who sought them out, who had tricky situations, situations they couldn't just handle on their own. At the elders in the city gates, people would come and talk to. Remember this famous Old Testament reference? In Proverbs chapter 31, it's talking about the the virtuous woman. We talk about this lady almost every year on Mother's Day. Just an incredible woman, a powerful woman, a, a productive woman. And it says this as just one of the things that she accomplished in her life in verse 23 of Proverbs 31, it says, her husband, 
kind of as a result of having her in his life, her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his place among the elders of the land. Maybe people might be sitting there looking at him and saying, you know, this guy's smart. The smartest thing he ever did is marry her. She is amazing. She has brought great wealth and health to her family, and he just... uh, you know, as the one that is responsible before God to oversee that family, what a blessing she has been to him. Anybody smart enough to marry her can probably give me some good advice in my life. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his place among the elders of the land. You see, elders were an established uh, staple almost, you could say, in every Jewish community in Old Testament time. Now, all of Christ's early disciples were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. It's understandable, it makes sense, that there's a New Testament carryover to this dynamic. Listen to this. The Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, one of his ministerial assistants. He says in Titus 1.5, the reason, Titus, I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished. See, they just established a church there. They just preached the gospel there. And now things were, were getting organized there. And Paul says, finish the things, straighten out the things that were left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. See, in every place where a a congregation of believers has been raised up, in every town, in every little local congregation, Titus, I want you to go back through the whole island, visit all the spots where we were, and you appoint elders in every one of those communities of believers because they need leadership. They need wise counsel, and you appoint them, and therefore they have the authority of the Apostle Paul upon them. They have the authority of Christ himself upon them, and they will be able to function in a good and godly way in their midst. Paul wrote to his son and the Lord Timothy with these words, 1 Timothy 4.14. Paul says, Do not neglect your gift, Timothy, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you and said, we see in this young man the calling of the Lord. We see in this young man the gifts of ministry, and no doubt prayed that God the Father would just fill him with every quality for ministry. Paul reminds Timothy, remember, it was the elders the wise and the good and the faithful leaders of the fellowship you were part of that laid their hands on you and identified you and even declared gifts of God upon you. What a role. What a thing to have in every local church, a body like that. James. James, the brother of Jesus, in perhaps the most Jewish of all the New Testament books, he wrote in the book that bears his name, James chapter 5, verse 14, he wrote these words, Is anyone among you sick? 
We know there's lots of ways to be sick. You can be sick physically. You can be sick emotionally. You can be distressed and sick spiritually. You can be sick in in so many different ways, things just not going well in your life. James says, is any of you like that? Any of you sick? Let them, let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, back in those days, there wasn't a whole lot of pharmaceutical drugs. Back in those days, sometimes physical sickness could be helped by anointing a person with oil and rubbing them and just getting their body kind of wakened up physically. There's also the element of this oil being represented representing the very power and spirit of God and to say, trust him, trust him, trust him. But it's the elders of the church doing that, exhorting and encouraging and ministering. James says, if you're in trouble, you call for them. You call for them to come and to pray for you and anoint you and and help you gain healing and strength. And then how about these words? From the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5.1, Peter is writing, remember we went through this, this, these two books a couple of years ago, First and Second Peter, they were written to Jews who were scattered through five different provinces of the Roman Empire. And so these are, would represent many, many local churches, many, many bodies of believers. And, and here Peter writes and says this, to the elders among you, he'd be talking to a lot of people, A lot of local churches through five provinces of Asia. And he says, and now to the elders among you, you know who you are. Everybody knew who they were in those spots. Now to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Peter didn't say, I appeal to you as an apostle of the Lord. Peter was saying, the job you are doing in the local church is the very thing I would seek to do myself, to be a counselor, a guide, a a determiner of the Lord's will for the church and for the people. I appeal to you. And I appeal to you on the basis that I'm one just like you. We're going to look at a few more verses in that very passage in a moment. But see, that's how Peter was identifying himself. And let me just tell you, in every one of those verses in the Greek New Testament, the word that's used, that's translated in our Bible, elder, is the Greek word presbuteros. Every time. That was the key word. It's used probably at least a hundred times in the New Testament. You see, that term highlights the personal quality of those who carry out that designation. An elder is a mature believer, a solid person, a quality individual who lives to a high moral and ethical standard. He's an elder. You can go to him and and seek guidance and be confident in the guidance he gives. He's not just some baby Christian. Well, now, how about that other Greek term, episkopos? You don't find this even one time in the Old Testament. There's no Hebrew uh, uh, designation uh, for this. 
In the Old Testament, they had the priests of God, the Levites who provided this particular function. And this word, episkopos, is only used uh, four times in the New Testament. So it's not used very much, but each use is significant, undeniably significant. So while the term presbuteros refers to the quality of the person, a mature person, the term episkopos refers to the importance of the position that this person fills, the job that he carries out, the task he's been given. So, as the term presbuteros is always translated elder, so the term episkopos is always translated overseer. That's the way the New International Version translates it. The King James, done many, many years ago, centuries ago, it chose the English word bishop. But it means someone who holds a position of authority and significance within the structure, a position of responsibility. As I said, there's only four passages where it's found. Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So Paul says for a believer, for someone who wants to follow after the Lord, for someone who wants to grow in his faith, for someone who loves the church, it's a good thing to say, oh, someday I would, I would love to be an overseer. I'd love to be a, an overseer, an episcopos of the, of the church of Jesus. Paul says that's a noble task. And there's nothing wrong with desiring it. In fact, it's good. And then he adds in verse 2 of that same passage, 1 Timothy 3, an overseer, see he's saying it's one thing to desire it, but here's what is required of it. An overseer is to be above reproach. Has a good, clean, honest, ethical, moral. Paul instructed Titus, in Titus 1.7 this way, he said, since an overseer, and now we get into the, the job hinted at, since an overseer manages God's household, that is, he, he watches and takes care of the things pertaining to the body of Christ, to the church, the local congregation. Since an overseer actually manages God's household, he must be blameless above reproach again. And then the Apostle Peter, it's interesting, Peter identifies Jesus himself in this way. Listen to what Peter wrote about the Lord to the believers of his day. 1 Peter 2.25, Peter says, for you, that would be us too, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. He's talking about Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you receive him as your Lord and Savior, when you are born again by the work of the Holy Spirit and become a child of God, Jesus himself takes up the responsibility of watching over your very soul. 
What's going on inside of you? How are you growing in your faith? What are you struggling with? What are the soul issues that you are dealing with? When Peter at another point told us that we are in the process of receiving the salvation of our souls, becoming more and more and more like Jesus Christ himself. And then Peter says, and Jesus Christ himself oversees that process in us. He sends his spirit to carry it out, but Jesus watches over it, is concerned for us like a shepherd over his sheep. You see, the overseer oversees. That's what he does. He watches over, he manages the house of God, its material and its spiritual needs, and all of its people. He follows in the footsteps of Jesus himself, and he is to meet and maintain the highest moral and ethical standards as he does so. In a word, he's to set a good example for the body. So now, is it beginning to dawn on you that the scripture is not talking about two jobs, or about two people. The New Testament churches do not have both elders and overseers, but they rather have elders who oversee. Or we could say they have mature overseers who demonstrate wisdom and sensitivity as they manage their portion of God's house. Now here's a couple of scriptures that say just that. Acts chapter 20 Paul, who had ministered in the church of Ephesus for several years during his missionary journeys, Paul, in Acts chapter 20, is heading to Rome where he's going to appear before Caesar. And knowing that he might never, ever come back, Paul, before he got on the ship, he called for the elders of the church at Ephesus who were a fairly near church to where he was boarding the boat, and he called for them to come and meet with him. And he called for the elders. It says that, Luke, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul called for the elders of the Ephesian church. And they came. Here, then, in part, is how he exhorted them, the elders. He said to them, Keep watch over yourself and all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to elders. They identify as elders. They're the mature ones, the older ones, the, the good example ones in the congregation. And he says to them, you elders, you maintain yourself, watch over the flock that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So verse 17, they're called elders. Verse 28, Paul says, you've been made overseers of this. Here's the passage that maybe absolutely settles it. 1 Peter 5, 3, then on, or verse 1 through 3, we started with one, we read this already. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, Peter says, and here's the rest of it. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Peter says, I'm appealing to you who are elders. 
You're watching over God's flock and you are serving them, you elders, as overseers, being examples to the flock. Peter joined those two terms together. And we here at Sun Life Community Church do the same. And so we come to our final thought, expressing it as a summary statement this morning. Here at Sun Life Community Church, only those who have served as shepherds, that's our term for those who lead our cell groups. They are shepherds of each cell group. Only those who have served as shepherds in our fellowship, only those who have demonstrated themselves to be mature, committed, and caring men, that is, as true elders of this fellowship, only they can become overseers and share the responsibility of managing the part of the household of God that has been entrusted to us. We have some wonderful elders in this church who function as overseers, watching over our needs, watching over the desires of the Lord, and seeking to have them carried out in our midst. And so today is going to be one day I'm not going to end with the final thought. I want to share with you a personal thought after that final thought. Let me say this. It has been my privilege all these years to serve as the chairman of our Sun Life Community Church Overseer Board. We actually meet together every single Monday night because we meet as shepherds to go over the cell group lesson of the week. There we meet as shepherds and all of our shepherds right now are actually also designated as overseers. So every Monday night, our entire overseer group meets together to discuss the, the teaching of the week and to discuss the needs of the people. When we meet together, meeting primarily as shepherds or elders of the flock, we hold in common the calling that the Holy Spirit has given us to serve this congregation. We delight in it. Monday night is a, is a highlight in our church life. I can't recall any meeting in all these years where a harsh word or angry word has been spoken in any of those. We keep in step with the Spirit, and as a result, we keep in step with you. It's been a delight to share leadership over the years with such men. Our present overseers are Joe Triboli, John Palazzola, Alan Giles, and John Haston. They are gifts to us from the Spirit himself. 27 years ago, when I first stepped into this type of overseer-led fellowship, I said, I feel like I have died and gone to heaven. I still do. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, it's a, it's a marvelous thing to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's a marvelous thing to be part of this unique aspect, body, within the vast company of those who follow Christ.
Father, thank you for leading us by your Spirit. Thank you for encouraging us to, to get into your Word and to seek to get as consistent and matched up to it as we possibly can. Father, I thank you for every member of this church over the years, what, what joy they bring. How very, very little, in fact, I can't hardly think of any fleshly expression in this congregation that I'm aware of over well over 20 years. Father, thank you for enabling us as a church to, to not really make any open provision for the flesh to express itself in our midst. Father, thank you for our present board of overseers, godly men, good men, sincere men, sensitive men, Bible-believing men, Holy Spirit-companioning men. Father, continue to guide us into the new year as you have in the past. For we praise you, we bless you, we pray that, that Christ himself is honored by the way this little portion of his body conducts. And to that end, we ask for his blessing even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.